All right. Well, I, I, I don't know about you, but when I was uh, settled down and, and writing and thinking about my past week, this past week for me, I don't, I'm not sure what it was, but it went really fast and felt really like almost distraught and disorganized and like I was being pulled in a number of different directions and, and I thought I got a handle on one thing and something else cropped up and, and all the things. Was it just me that had a, had a busy week like that? Yes? Okay. Well, <laughs> we're retired, I hear, from the front row. Goodness. Man. <laughs> the funny thing about that, not about being retired, the funny thing about looking back on my week and thinking, man, it, like I, I was kind of all over the place in different parts of the week, was, was last Sunday we were looking at this prayer from Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, and the, the, the piece that we keyed in on was Paul's prayer that the Holy Spirit would kind of calm us and that, that, that Jesus would move into our lives and would dwell in our inner beings and we would submit our lives to him. And if I had done all those things, my week might have gone better. It's amazing how the Lord reveals these things in our lives. We said last week that if, if we surrender our wills to his, which is what it means to allow Jesus to come and dwell inside of us. It means we're handing him the controls. We're giving him the reins of our lives. We said this, this surrender is, is like a trapeze artist who swings and lets go and then has to hold still waiting to be caught. If they flail, they're hitting the mat or the net below. But if they hold still, and the timing's right, they'll be caught, right? So I was reminded again this week that it is not my natural tendency to surrender. More often than not, I tend to more uh, lean towards the old adage of when the going gets tough, the tough get going. All right, I've got some things to take care of. I better work harder. I better pull up those socks. We're not boot wearing bootstraps anymore, right? When, when things start to pile up, the combination of Again, it wasn't an especially busy or overwhelming week. I, I don't know what it was, but the combination of, of work and home and, and kids and the, the, the constant 24-hour bad news cycle and, and all the things start to just pile up. My tendency is either to try to, to grab control of whatever I can to, to find something firm to carry on with or to, to pull out my device and just log on and watch more Oilers highlights. They won again last night. and I mean, they even the, the U of A even sent their goalie in, and they still won last night, right? I don't know if you saw that. But to just kind of dissociate, right? Or to sit on the couch and put my feet up and, and watch Netflix or whatever else. So my, my tendency is either to, to try to grab control or to just ignore everything, neither of which are surrender. Anybody other than your retired folk find that to be true? Grab control, ignore instead of surrender. The thing is, when, when, when I look back, in, in, in retrospect, whenever I try to grab control or distract myself, things tend to get more out of control. It doesn't solve anything, right? My, my mind is, is, is pulled from, from this thing to that. I have, have conversations over and over in my head. Oh, I should have said that. I can't believe I said that. Or how did I miss this? Or all these things. And, and my to-do list, to-do list just circles and grows and grows. And I got little papers and post-its everywhere. And it's anything but calm and stable 
waiting to be caught. That's why in the verses we looked at last week, Paul prayed that we would be strengthened by the Lord's power in our inner beings and that Christ would dwell in our hearts. John Stott beautifully um, summed up this prayer and he said that Paul prays that Christ, by his Spirit, would be allowed to settle down in our hearts. And I would suggest maybe then he would settle down our hearts. And from his throne there both control and strengthen us. See, the problem is we, we want to control everything we can, and yet when we're counting on ourselves for control and stability, in the long run, our lives tend to be anything but controlled and stable. If you have a Bible with you, and I hope that you do, you can open up to that prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to keep uh, looking at this prayer. We're going to start in about the middle of verse 17, if you want to look it up. And when we get to this point in the prayer, we started back at verse 14 a couple of weeks ago, and next week we'll wrap it up at the end of verse 21. But when you get to the middle point of this prayer, in about the, the, the middle of verse 17, his, his tone changes a bit. Remember, he started in verse 14, 14 saying, and for all these reasons, I've just written three chapters of letter to you, church, and for all these reasons, when I think about all that God has done for us, I fall to my knees and worship and pray. That's all I can do. That's the only right response. And then he went on to talk about uh, how God was good, and he, he prayed for God's strength and power to indwell us so that we might be uh, strengthened by him. And now he, he starts instead to, uh, to, of talking about God and asking for his strength, he starts to talk about the church moving from strength to love, and he starts to, to ask for things. He moves from kind of that adoration phase of prayer to that, that bringing our request to God stage of prayer. He moves from talking about strength to love. And this makes sense. Paul, Paul knows these first readers well, and he knows that they need the power of the Holy Spirit at work within them to understand the love of God, and then to, to live out of that love to the world around them. So let me read our verses for us this morning. Ephesians 3, in the middle of, starting in the middle of verse 17 or so. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, the height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's beautiful. You can often tell what's important to someone when you look at their prayers. You can often tell what's important to someone when you look at what they're praying for and how they're praying, which, maybe a bit of a rabbit trail, begs the question, what did I pray for this week? What's important to me? When we read this prayer, you can tell that Paul loved this church, that he loved these people. We know from other places in the New Testament that he spent three years with this church, starting it from nothing, planting it, raising up leaders, pouring into the lives of people. Who knows how many meals he had, how many, how many uh, you know, tough situations he went to, how many of these people he cried with, how many of these people he, he celebrated with, how many he baptized, how many... How many people they lost while they were there? All things. He, he loved these people. We read in about Acts 20 or so that he went to visit them again later after he had, had left. He'd come back for a visit and, and he met them. He said, you guys, this is the last time we'll be together. I know that I'm on my way to be killed for my faith. This is it. And they fell down to their knees and they wept together. 
They, 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 he loved them so much. And it was out of that love that he knew that the most important thing that he could ask the creator of the universe for, for this church, is that they would be rooted and grounded in God's love. And he knows that it isn't easy, and he knows that it isn't natural for us, but he knows that that's what's best. It's important to know that, that, that Paul isn't praying that the church would know Jesus more, as important as that is. He isn't praying that they would love Jesus more, as important a prayer as that is. But no, rather that they would know how much they are loved by Jesus. That's the crux of the prayer. That's the whole point. I pray that you would know how much God loves you. Not because of what you've done. Not because of who you are. Because He's God and He loves you. See, when we, when we start to grasp that, when we start to get just a little bit more uh, understanding and knowledge of, of how much God loves me, it'll change everything. See, I'll be, I'll be way more willing to hand over the reins of control or the, the Jesus take the wheel, right? Way more likely to do that if I understand that Jesus loves me and he wants what's best for me. I, I, I'll be way more likely to change how I deal with stress and conflict because I know Jesus' way is best and that he loves me we're way more likely to, to shift our priorities, to, to change our deepest longings and loves and align them with his rather than our own or with cultures because he loves us and wants what's best for us. And the more we grasp this, the more we'll let him lead and guide every single part of our lives, our families, our hobbies, our finances, our time, our relationship, our sexuality, everything that makes us who we are, we will let him lead and guide and, and instruct us in those areas because he loves us and he wants what's best for us. This isn't just a, a one-off prayer for Paul either. He, he in other places, prays and, and writes that, that, that an understanding of Jesus' love is really tied to the disciples' radical obedience. Because Jesus loves you so much, it's worth it to give up everything for him. In Galatians 2, he, he puts it this way. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and, it's I that I, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Later in this letter in Ephesians 5, he says, and, and to walk in love as Christ loved us and as Christ gave himself for us. Now, Paul isn't praying and asking that we would learn more things about God, that we would just intellectually have more factual knowledge about this thing called God's love. I would guess, and I would, I would hope, that it would only take maybe one or two church services to, that you'd be a part of to hear at least the intellectual fact that God is love and God loves you. Hopefully that's it. Or less. But Paul doesn't want us to learn more about 
that head knowledge. He's after something so much more. Uh, one commentator says this, Paul's not asking that his readers might be able to better articulate the greatness of God's love in Christ or to grasp with intellect how significant God's love is in the plan of redemption, but he's asking God that they, us, the church, he's asking God that they might have the power to grasp the dimensions of that love in their experience. It's taking it from, from the knowledge to the heart, to the, from, from knowing facts about God to living in and through and, and around those facts too. See, God's, God's love is rooted in history. There's a, a, it is a fact that Jesus came, walked the earth, and was killed on a cross. No historian worth their salt argues that. You can argue about who Jesus was, and that's fine. But we believe God's love is rooted in history, most significantly at the cross. But we need so much more than just bits of knowledge of a historical event. For us to be rooted and grounded, as Paul's praying for here, we need to experience that love for ourselves. And this is not something original with Paul. Over and, the, over, and over in the Bible, we're given this idea of experiencing God. In Psalm 34, verse 8, the psalmist writes, Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the one who takes refuge in him? Now, think when you think about tasting and seeing, the first thing that comes to mind for me is, is, is a meal in front of you, whether it's uh, you know, the, the bowl of fruit, fresh fruit. We don't get a whole lot of that this season, but, but fresh fruit or maybe a, I'm partial to like a steak dinner, right? And I can look at a nice plated steak with potatoes and veggies and all the things, and I can know that's going to be delicious. But until I take that knife and it just kind of goes right through, right? Until I, I'm salivating already, right? Until that first bite hits, I haven't experienced that yet, right? The Bible says, taste and see, experience God and see that he's good. I'd go so far to say, test God and see if he's good. A little bit later in the Psalms, in Psalm 143, the psalmist there writes, Let me experience your faithful love in the morning, for I trust you. Reveal to me the way I should go, because I appeal to you. Let me experience your love. Peter, later in the New Testament, would write, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though, you, though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. This isn't just head knowledge. This is an experiential thing as well. Paul says that this love, it surpasses knowledge. It's not something that you can only wrap your head around. The love of God has to be experienced in order to be understood. And I know that some of us in the room, I know some of our backgrounds, and I know our, our church histories a little bit. I know my own church history. I know that some of us, as soon as you heard me say the word experience, we're like, where are we going? What's happening here? Experience? Can we trust experiences? Let me suggest we can. Let me point out two things that we want to avoid as we weigh our experiences as well, okay? There's two ditches on either side of the path that Paul wants us to walk as we experience God's love. And the first one is experiential abuse. Okay, experiential abuse. And I know abuse is a big, heavy word, but I think it still fits, okay? Some, some of us base too much of our understanding of God on our experience. 
Well, it seems right. Lots of people are going that way. I, I felt the move of the Spirit, so it must be good. Right? You end up in this ditch if you don't filter your experience through God's Word. And it's, it's, it's a really easy ditch to fall into. Or you can be in a conversation, all of a sudden, uh, man, they make a good point. Maybe, maybe, maybe I do need more experiences. Or you're in a conversation, and you might come across and say, well, how, how can you argue with love is love? And I am going to get into that, not this, fully this morning, but let me suggest love is not love. I think it's easy to argue with love is love. We all know this to be true. I love my wife much different than I love my children. And I love my children different than I love all of you, which I do. It's different. And I love God much different than I love my wife and my kids and all of you. Love is not love. There's different loves. We'll get into that, uh, not this week, but at some point in the near, not too distant future. But it's easy to fall into this ditch of experiential abuse if you don't weigh your experiences by the Bible, when you don't view your experiences through a scriptural lens. We focus too much on our experience as well and, and kind of put the Bible on the shelf and just live out our experiences. We can get all kinds of odd beliefs trickling into our faith too and calling them Christian when they're really not. One I'll kind of carefully say is we, we've probably all heard, you know, my, my, my loved one is now an angel in heaven looking down on me. Well, people and angels are two very different things. So do our loved ones look down on us from heaven? We're not going to get there this morning. Maybe. I don't know. But they don't become angels. Right? Focusing too much on experience can lead to just a, really what looks more like an Eastern mysticism than a Bible-believing faith. I just felt the present in the wind. I just moved this way. I, I just feel this should be right, and I should do this. And you're not sure if it's the Holy Spirit calling you or bad pizza from the night before, but I've got this gut feeling, right? I don't, I don't want to make light of it, but how, how many times, too, have we heard somebody say, God told me so? It's like, well, did he? God's revelation to us through his word is primary. Every experience that we have has to be viewed and understood through the lens of Scripture, first and foremost. Which is why it's so important to be reading your Bibles. Which is why I've got Bible reading plans printed on the back table there. And it's why we've got other ones posted on our website. Because how can we measure and view our experiences in lens with the lens of the scripture if we don't know the scriptures. Somebody uh, posted on, I don't know, I think it was Twitter um, this week, was Tim Keller who said the, the most beneficial thing a Christian can do is read his Bible or her Bible cover to cover every year. Okay. I cannot, who's going to argue with Tim Keller, right? Not me. Not about this, anyways. Maybe some other things, but 
We've got to be in the Bible because the Bible is our primary lens of how we view and understand the world. So on the one, the one ditch, we've got experiential abuse. On the other side is experiential avoidance. And full disclosure, this is, tends to be more where I fall, the avoidance side, than, thank you, Jesus, I think, the abuse side. We're, this is where we're so afraid of, of, of falling into the abuse side, where we've seen people live out a, a spiritual Christianity. We're like, I don't think that's, I don't think that's a thing. And we're so scared of falling into that that we step way over here, off the camera, <clears throat> and don't experience any of that. And we wrongly, well, I do, maybe you do as well, but I justify this in my mind of saying, man, this, this, this spirituality thing has been mishandled so well in, in, in this where I've seen it happen here or in this church or in this thing that I just want to be so far away from it so that I don't make that mistake. I was challenged and, and convicted by something I was reading about a year ago and I'm still trying to work through the implications where I said this. So just because you've watched somebody misuse spiritual gifts, does that mean they're no longer spiritual gifts? Just because somebody does evil, does that mean it's not a good thing anymore? People have car accidents all the time. Should we stop driving because we don't want to experience the car accident? No, that's silly. But on the other hand, as one pastor writes, those who avoid the Spirit and avoid the experience in an effort to you know, not fall in that ditch have a cold, dead orthodoxy. Well, I don't want that either. I don't want that for me. I don't want that for you. I have a friend um, who's moved to Canada from uh, South Africa, and one of the things he said when he, they started to attending their church in Manitoba was, there's a lot of dry toast Christians here. Just dry toast? That's like, I don't, I don't want to be dry toast. I don't want that for me. So we don't want to fall into the abuse or the avoidance side. We, we want to walk that line. And Paul says, you can walk that line. There is a line to be walked. And he's going to show us what we need. He spent three chapters on God's truth. So he is rooting this in the Bible already, right? And then he gets to this prayer. He wants us to experience it. He knows that, that God's power and God's saving work and God's rescuing work that we call salvation and God's love is meant to be not just known, but also experienced. It's not just you know something, again, you, you understand and put on the shelf, but you, you live it out and you work through this. Over the years, there have been many people who knew all the right things and still committed all kinds of sins because they were not personally walking in the fullness of God's presence and love. It wasn't here. It was just something in their heads. So what does Paul pray for? Four things. First, to know that you are secured in God's love, rooted, established, grounded. He uses two metaphors, one of a giant tree being rooted and one of being grounded. It's an architectural metaphor. If you're sitting kind of near the front, you can look out these windows and say, okay, I hope there's a good foundation behind there because if it's not, those walls are going to wiggle and fall down, right? We hope it's rooted into something. Or maybe we think of Psalm 1 where the psalmist talks about how, how the, the tree is, is rooted next to the river and it's strong and no matter what comes, it's not going anywhere because it's rooted and established. It's built on a strong foundation. John Stott says, 
Love is the soil in which their life is to be rooted, and love is the foundation on which their life is to be built. And just to be as clear as I can, God's love, the gospel, is what we are to root our lives in and build our lives on the foundation. We build it in the love of Jesus. We let our roots go down into the love of Christ and draw our strength from there and try to live moment by moment knowing that we are loved by God. And Paul has told us this earlier in the letter already, if we'd read it, that this love of God came from before the foundations of the earth. So if we're rooting ourselves in that love, we're, we're rooting ourselves in something that existed before the world. That's probably pretty secure. It's been around. It's probably not going to change. And he's told us in chapter 2 as well that the love of God, it's, it's that that called us and brought us back to life. So the first thing we want to know that we are secure in God's love, and that means when the world starts to wiggle around us and things get busy, and they don't get busy, Wayne, I know. But when the things start to happen, it's like, no, no, okay, God's love is secure. And it doesn't mean it's always going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's always going to be perfect. But I'm going to plant my feet on this, and it's going to be okay. He'll carry me through it. The second thing Paul prays for this church and for us as well, that we might know the limitless dimensions of God's love. He longs that we would understand the length and width, the height and breadth of God's love. John Stott again says, it seems legitimate to say that the love of God is broad enough to encompass all of humankind, every single one of us. It's long enough to last for all of eternity. It's deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. And it's high enough to exalt him or her to heaven. Oh, that we would get that. Jeremiah says that God has loved you with an everlasting love in Jeremiah 33. The psalmist writes of God's love being as high as the heavens, that we might understand that God's love is broad enough to encompass everyone, that it's long enough to last forever and ever, that it's deep enough to reach the most sinneriest of sinners. As far as we could run, it will come to us, and it's high enough to bring us to, to heaven. These dimensions are go beyond our knowledge, but we should try to understand it. We should try and realize it's beyond what we can understand on ourselves. But we should ask for God's power and keep trying to find the ends of God's love because we know they will. Notice, too, that we're to try to grasp the dimensions of God's love, uh, not just on a solo endeavor, but with all the saints. So that may you be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love. There's only, there's only so far we can go alone on this journey. There's only a small little piece of God's love that we can understand by ourselves. We need not just one another, but we need all the saints, which means how many? All. This crosses any dividing line that you might want to draw. We need everyone across age, race, gender, uh, financial status, location. We, we need one another. We need to get together to, to talk about his love, to tell stories of his love, to hear how God's love is at work in different parts of the world to remind us that this little bubble of the Bow Valley that we live in, there's a lot of stuff going on outside of here, and it's pretty different. We need 
to tell stories and to study the Bible together and to learn about God's love together because then we'll be shaped by God as his community and reflect the gospel to others around us too. So we want to know the limitless dimensions of his love. And he prays, Paul does as well, that we would know that this love surpasses knowledge. We've touched on this a little bit. We can't get to the bottom of it, but he says, keep trying, keep going, keep digging. How do we experience this love? There's a couple of ways. First, we try to experience it vertically with, between us and God. And one of the ways we can do that is actually to stop and think about what God has done for us, to, to marvel in his love, to use the, the biblical language of, of meditate on God's word, to, 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 to ponder these thoughts and to let them ruminate through our minds and even like mutter them under our breath. So God is love and he did this for me. I was, I was dead in sin, but because of God. And just like sit there to marvel at God's love and second, to, to rest in his forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32 says, Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. I don't know if you've ever said this, but I know that I have in my past, and I hope I don't again. I know God has forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. Anyone ever thought, you don't have to raise your hand, but anyone ever thought that, believed that? I know intellectually that the Bible says that because of Jesus' work, God's forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself for doing that. Let me just come out and say that is like heresy. It's idolatry. It's not true. If, if God has forgiven us, which the Bible tells us, if we ask and turn to him, he does. It's good. If God has forgiven us, then we need to move on. There may be consequences. There may be lasting effects. I know that. You know that. But God's forgiveness is there, and we can rest in it. If we think by saying, I just can't forgive myself, that we need something more than God to forgive us, which is exactly what we're saying if we say, God forgive me, but I can't forgive myself. What we are saying is that we need something other than God for forgiveness. That we need to find some other way to have our sin paid for. That Jesus' death on the cross was not enough to pay for the mess I put myself into. We're rejecting the gospel. And we're putting our faith in some works-based system that says, i got to clean myself up enough to deal with that junk in my past. Man, do I pray that we would spend time this week to marvel in God's love and rest in his forgiveness. Because if we don't, it's, it's so enslaving and binding. Second, we experience God's love horizontally. We, we show God's love to the world around us, to everyone. People in the church, people outside the church, regardless of, of who they are, where they're from, where they're going, where they, all the things. We forgive because God has forgiven us. We don't look down on other lives and say, well, I'm actually pretty good and God's lucky to have me on his team, but boy, I'm glad I didn't do that. No, remember that every single one of us has fallen short of God's glorious standard and we need Jesus to draw us back. The last thing Paul prays for is that we would know God's love so that we would be mature in our faith. 
He wraps this part of the prayer up asking that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. He's saying, be, be everything that God wants you to be. Be everything that God created you to be. Be spiritually mature. Be all that you can be in Christ. A little bit later in the next chapter, Paul says something similar, that he, he longs that they would all reach unity in faith and knowledge of God's Son, growing in maturity to the stated measure of Christ's fullness. This, this is the goal that he wants for us. As individuals, we, we go on being filled with the Spirit of God. And as a church, though we, we have him in our midst and the Spirit is with us and moving and working, we keep uh, aiming to grow in that, to grow in him until we reach fullness. In Colossians, Paul says that God's fullness dwelt in Christ. That if you looked at Jesus, you saw God. And that's what he prays for us too. That we would grow to be that. When, when people look at us, they wouldn't see Sean anymore, but they would actually see something so much better. Jesus also got at this idea. This isn't just something Paul prayed for. But in John 17, he prayed for his disciples. He said, so the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. I pray, he's prayed, that the fullness of God's love would be in his disciples. And we cannot be mature. We cannot grow beyond a certain point in our faith unless we know and experience the love of God in Christ. So we should each be seeking that and praying that for ourselves and for one another and for our church and for the church so that we would have the power to love those around us, to display God's love to those around us, to our neighbors, to our churches, to our families, and to a broken and watching world. Now listen, I don't have any reason to think that my coming week is going to be less stressful, less hectic, less disorganized, less chaotic than the one I just had. But my hope is for me and for us, that rather than being shaken and burdened and stressed by all the things, that instead we would be rooted in God's love and know that there's stuff going on, but God, you're with me, we can make it through. And I pray that we would grow in our knowledge of the limitless dimensions of God's love, that it is wide enough to encompass every human, that it is long enough to last for all eternity, that it goes deep enough to reach us wherever we are, and it goes high enough to take us to be seated with Him. I pray that we would be all we can be, that we would be filled with the fullness of God and experience His love this week. Let me pray for us. God, thank You for this morning. Thank You for this text. Thank You for Your Word. I do pray that you would help us to experience you this week. And I pray for those of us who have maybe tended towards what I call experiential abuse, where we, we, where we take our experience and we, we, we base our life on that. Guide us back to your word. Help us to, to view our experiences through the lens of scripture, to root our experiences in what you tell us is true to test them. Maybe our experiences are good and true and, and, and valid, and that's, that's great. Confirm that. And Jesus, for those of us who have tended to go the other way, to have seen spiritual abuse or experiential abuse and just throw the whole thing out, 
forgive me and forgive us. Help us to know your love, not just in our heads. Help us to see your love in action in us and through us. Speak to us, lead us, guide us. Change our desires and our loves to be ones of you. Help us to understand just how great your love is for us. And even though it goes well beyond anything that we can imagine, by your power, help us to grow and know. Help us to be filled with the fullness of God, to grow in maturity, not so that we look good, but God, so you look good, and we can point other people to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.